Good morning. My name is Bill Safestrom. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Hebrews. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 from the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. And, uh, oh, what just happened there? That's a picture of uh, <laughs> Julie just announced, for those of you who missed the announcements, that she's going to be a grandmother. And so, and uh, I was thinking, we should have put that picture up while she was saying that. Let's, that's, you see the head? That's cool. Okay, great. Congratulations. Should we just keep it up there for the whole sermon? Uh, we are in a series called Witness, and uh, it's a series through the book of Hebrews, and the subtitle is In Christ in Culture. And what I've been doing is I've been appealing to your own experience of Christ in your life. And part of the deal is that if we speak of what we have not seen and heard, then uh, we don't come off very well, and those who hear it reject it. But if we give testimony as real eyewitnesses, as those who have experienced something in someone uh, firsthand, then that kind of testimony is intriguing, and it opens hearts doors and minds doors. And advertisers will tell you, you know, personal testimonials are where it's at. It's, it's such a powerful way to uh, convince someone. And so I want to ask you to do that. In this series, and today we're talking about this concept of deep rest. And I want to ask you do you have deep rest in your life? Are you living and moving uh, and having your being out of a place of deep rest? 
And if you do, then out of that experience, you bear witness to the rest that Jesus alone can give to you. And if you don't have that, if you're churning on the inside, and there's a kind of inner chaos that is who you are and how you are, so there's a kind of inner panic just beneath the surface. If that's who you are, then even if you use Christian words, you're still bearing witness to the panic, to the anxiety, to the fear that's within, rather than the rest that's within. So I want to ask you, do you have this rest? And if you are here and you're somebody that doesn't believe in God, you don't believe in God's love for you, you believe that's kind of irrelevant to your life, do you need rest? Where do you get it if you need it? Start with a couple of uh, personal uh, questions that maybe help you get engaged here. How many of you are tired? Show of hands. How many of you are tired even after sleeping, even after sleeping an extra hour? Okay. Getting a little deeper here. How about even after vacation, you're still tired and you need another one quick? Yeah, vacations are exhausting, aren't they? <laughs> how many of you, this is again getting a little deeper now still, how many of you have ever experienced burnout in your life? Yeah, burnout is a very real thing. Um, I come from, my own story is uh, that I was burning out and have been recovering for six years. And I'm going to recommend a book later. And that book uh, I I bought on Amazon, I guess, because I looked up that book again. And Amazon reminded me that I bought this in the year 2009. And it brought me back to 2009 as I was in the midst of recovery from personal burnout. And this uh, burnout was a very serious condition prior to my own experience of burnout. I thought burnout was sort of this uh, excuse that people sort of just threw out there when they were tired, you know, and they were sort of just needing a break. They would say, oh, I'm, I'm feeling all burnt out. Uh, or I had, a, I had a really tough week. I feel burnt out. But what I discovered was that burnout is deep and it's very uh, real and it's devastating. It was wrecking my life. And it wasn't from the work that I literally externally did, but it was the way I did the work. It was uh, how I worked, and deeper still, why I worked. And the nature of the work that I was doing, which was spiritual work, I was planting churches, uh, it caused me to experience a kind of uh, jadedness and cynicism about the faith itself. And uh, what happened for me is the, um, the way that I was working, this burnout, caused me to experience a kind of cynicism, first about the goodness of God, and then it morphed into a doubt about the existence of God itself. And I started relating internally more to my uh, atheist uh, counterparts in the world, and I was on their blogs and on their forums and reading what they were thinking. And I was relating to their, their worldview of how life was and why. And I started feeling a distance between me and the God that I claimed to work for and love because I didn't experience work the way God intended me to experience work which is, I don't work so that I could rest, but out of rest, I work and live and move and have my being. I relate to people. 
I say hello and goodbye and everything in between is out of this deep sense of rest. During my burnout, I learned that there was a kind of work underneath the work, as Tim Keller likes to say, that was keeping me addicted. I was like a slave, even though I was living in civil society. There was a kind of deep work that was never ceasing. And there was a kind of way of life that pervaded every aspect of who I was. When you experienced Peter, you experienced a Peter that was always working, all the time, trying to extract something out of every situation, every scenario, every relationship. And it was tiring for me, and it was tiring for others around me. During my burnout uh, and recovery from a Benedictine monk in Wisconsin, I learned this little phrase. He used to say, Peter, be kind. Be kind. And I thought that was the silliest, cheesiest, sort of like love yourself, give yourself a hug kind of statement. And I rejected it at first. But then he had me think about how I treat myself. And I realized if I treated my friends the way I treated myself, I would have no friends. For example, uh, all day, all day, every moment, I'm comparing myself to the things that I see on the outside here. So if somebody's wearing certain kind of shoes, how they walk, how tall they are, how they look, how they work, what they have, everything was a point of comparison. And I realized, you know, if I externally express comparison for everything towards my friends, they would never be my friends. It would be very hurtful. It would be devastating for them if I compare them to everything all day long. Imagine spending a day with somebody who's constantly comparing you to somebody That's pretty unkind. I was also very judgmental and critical of myself. There was this inner dialogue of judgment. This, as we're going to read later, eternal inner murmur towards myself. There was a constant self-reproach. And if I was doing that to a loved one or a friend, they would not be my loved one for very long. See, so I began to realize, I mean, even a sillier example, I realized also Several times during the day, I don't let myself even go to the bathroom because I'm in the middle of a conversation or something else is happening. So I hold my pee. How cruel would it be if I was your friend? I'm like, no, you can't go. You cannot go to the bathroom. Nope, hold it. Another hour, yes. Hold it for another hour. You'll forget about it soon. Just push through this. Come on. What's wrong with you? That's no friend. But that is how I was living and moving, relating to myself and to the world. It's unkind treatment. My personal story of recovery from burnout, uh, six years in the making, is that it's a story about grace, about what it means to already be loved, constant, daily, long spiritual formation about grace, an identity, where my identity comes from. What do I stick my flag? Where, where, do I, where do I stick my flags? Where do I stick my claim? Who am I? And where does it come from? My story is about humility, about accepting my limitations and accepting limitations of what achievement is, what success is, what perceived control is. What's the value of that? Who really has it? And why do I want it? Why do I need it? 
My story is about working towards rest, not resting so that I could work. That's what we think of, how we think of rest. I need to take a nap. I need to go on vacation so that I can be recovered, so that I can go back to being a slave. But it's really working so that I could rest. The means is work. The end game is rest. And then it's about discipline. What's the place of discipline? What is the God-intended place of discipline in our life? And I would say that it is so that we can rest. He says this in the passage that was read for us. Be diligent. For what? Why should we work hard? Why should we be disciplined? So that you can experience rest. Deep rest. Inject a little humor in here. Forgive me if this is uh, not, not your speed. Um, I, have, I like being stupid and silly. I think it's what all great fatherhood is based on, is willingness to be stupid at any time, any time of day, right? And so I have this saying, when I get really tired, and it was by accident that this beautiful genius statement came about, I would say, I'm tired. How are you doing? I'm tired. And it sort of became like a draw, like, I'm tired. And then it stood me, came, I'm tired. I'm so tired. I'm like a piece of poop. You know, and so Brent and I do this. Uh, say, hey, how you doing? Say, I'm turd. <laughs> I'm so turd. And then now Susie and I do this. Say, how are you doing? I'm turd. And it's code for I'm like deeply tired. There's fatigue to my bones. I'm turd. I'm like a piece of poop. Right? It's a cry for help. It's a uh, signal to others that I'm no good right now. Please let me go eat or sleep or exercise or something because I'm turd. Are you turd? About inside, on the inside, are you turd? Are you just tired of living the way you've been living? Is this the way you want to keep going? What's your witness going to be? Do you know you have these vibes you give off? If you're just sort of a hamster on the inside, just unable to get off the treadmill. If that's you, that's not just about you. There is a community around you. There are your kids and your loved ones and your friends and your coworkers and society at large. When they experience you, their anxiety level just goes up a little. It's like, oh, I'm, I've somehow, for some reason, I've been injected with something. Or you bring the calm. You bring rest with you. And you provide rest for people, even in those little interactions you have with somebody in your day, at the gas station or at the grocery store or at a restaurant. You can have an ability to give rest to people because that's who you are on the inside. That's your sort of uh, uh, fragrance as a person. But if you're deeply tired, if, if you're being cruel to yourself, Guess how others experience you. No matter what you say or what you're doing, there's a, there's a self that the world is experiencing. It's either cursed by or blessed by. Think about the people in your life. Think about your own energy level after you walk away from an interaction with them. Do you feel like you have less energy or more energy? Did they suck energy from you or did they give? So today, I don't know how many of you will have the years to hear what the scriptures have to teach about rest. 
But it has been my experience that teaching on rest and Sabbath, it's sort of the long game. You don't experience it in a sermon. You don't even see the insight in it until you've been trying it for a year or two or three, and then you realize you've been formed and shaped by this silly ancient practice called the Sabbath. And then soon enough, I guarantee it, it will become the cornerstone of your life. It will be where you experience centeredness, where you are reminded that you are so much more than the work that you do, than the product that you produce, than your performance in society, in relationships. It's not about any of that. But it's about the experience of inner freedom as one who is already loved and cared for. One for whom God has a plan. One in whom God himself is working. And you may not have the ears to hear it, and your life will go on, but at some point it will catch up to you. As the scriptures say, you will fall. You will. You're going to break apart. But there's an invitation here for those who have the ears to hear to experience his rest. And it's a deep rest. And it's a rest that you can't get from vacation or from sleep or from food. All of those things have been pointing to the rest that God alone can give through Christ, his son, is the Christian message. So I have two points today for those of you who are turd. Okay? Uh, One, what is deep rest? And two, how do we get some? How do we enter in? We start with what is deep rest in verse 8 and 9. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Here's a couple of things that these two verses are saying. The first is that Egypt was holding the Israelites captive as slaves. And the Israelites had sort of this liberation theology, freedom theology, and they thought that if they can experience political freedom, if they can have uh, dominion over their own lives, then they would be free. And here the writer of Hebrews is pointing out, actually, the slavery in Egypt was a metaphor. And the freedom they experienced, beginning with their entrance into the land of Canaan, the promised land, was just a metaphor for rest, that there is a kind of slavery, and I think our modern-day word for this uh, in our context is addiction. There's a kind of restlessness that is slavery and addiction for us, and it's not about what we are actually doing. Our physical work may indicate a certain kind of internal condition, but you can look like you're resting and still be restless. You can look like you're part of more civilized society and you're doing work that you're being well compensated for, but yet you're still a slave on the inside. It is possible for you to live a different way because there is a Sabbath rest reserved for God's people. That if somehow you come to understand the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This, we're going to get to this in the next two weeks in the rest of uh, this chapter. 
the grace that we're, we'll talk about, but there is a kind of rest from internal work that is deep rest, a freedom that is freedom from within. And even if you are a literal slave, you can still be a free man on the inside. Even if you are the master on the outside, you can still be a slave on the inside. That's true. This is what it's saying. Joshua didn't give them rest after all, even though he led them out of slavery into their own land. They, had, they took possession of their own land. And God said, oh, by the way, that's not the rest I promised you. Fascinating. <clears throat> and then in verse 1, we have, therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. There's a few things to draw, but the one thing I want to point out in this verse is it's kind of a summary verse of all the other times, the several times that the writer of Hebrews has talked about God's rest. And here's what I think it's saying, that God's fear for you is that you would misunderstand the point of his work, his promise in your life. His promise in your life isn't that you're going to be healthy forever. The promise of God in your life isn't that he's going to work out all the logistical things related to your life with money and job. The promise for you isn't that you're going to always have peaceful, flourishing relationships. There's going to be conflict at times. There's going to be falling outs with people. You're going to put, find yourself in very difficult situations in relationships. Job, money, Lots of things happening in your life. Through all of it, you know, you could ask, what's God's will then? What's the great plan he has for me? What's the point of God in my life? Or what's the point of my life? And God would say, the line that I'm tracing in your life, the plumb line of my work in your life is your ability to enter into my rest. That's what God is saying. What am I doing in you? It's not to get into all the little nitty-gritty details. And, you know, we are addicted to work. We're slaves, as Scripture says. So we think God's working to sort of in cahoots with us to help us be better workers. And that's not it. That's not what God's doing. God sometimes doesn't make sense. And what he's doing and the line that he's drawing doesn't make sense because his line is rest. He's saying, you know, for me as God, to save you means internally I'm causing you, helping you to understand that your life, your worth, your identity, your meaning, your purpose isn't work. That God did your work. That Jesus finished your work. And your job now, your job is to work towards Understanding how to enter into that rest, how to live life out of that rest. That's what God is doing. Now, still, there remains the question what is deep rest? Verse 3 and uh, 4 says, His works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all 
his works. There is a rest that God himself experiences and he offers it to us. What is it? What is this divine and deep rest that he offers us? And uh, uh, what do you think? What is it? And uh, I, uh, in my research, came across a Keller sermon, and Keller pointed to a woman named Judith Sholovitz, and she writes for the New York Times occasionally, and she wrote this article in March 2003. I'll give you the reference for it later as part of your application, uh, but it's, it's a rather lengthy reading I want us to engage in together, but I think she says it so well that I want you to read it with me. I mean, inside your heads, I'm going to be reading it out loud. Uh, It's several slides long, and uh, what I did was I took chunks of this article and I just pressed it together into one reading, but I want to encourage you to read this later uh, in its entirety, but uh, just be patient with me as I read through this and digest it. This is uh, me employing Judith to um, uh, preach the rest of the sermon for me, okay? She says it so well. Bring Back the Sabbath in the New York Times by Judith Shelovitz from March 2nd, 2003. When Sunday was still sacred, the machinery of self-censorship shut down, still stilling the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. Did you know this, that whenever Sunday stopped, there's a kind of machinery that came to a halt, societally speaking. And there was a time when uh, there was a sacred day, and it, it, was, it was societally sanctioned as a Sabbath, as a rest day. And so society, culturally, didn't schedule things. There was a kind of bracketed day of the week, and we benefited from that. And that's what she's talking about, that there's a kind of inner murmur that goes on and on of self-reproach, of self-censorship. And it comes to stop, uh, comes to a halt on the Sabbath. There is some ample evidence that our relationship to work is out of whack. Economists, psychologists, and sociologists have charted our ballooning work hours, the increase in time devoted to competitive shopping, the commercialization of leisure, and emotionally draining interactions with service personnel. Ours is a society that pegs status to overachievement. We can't help admiring workaholics. Let me argue instead on behalf of an institution that has kept workaholism in reasonable check for thousands of years. Most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is to not work. The inventors of the Sabbath understood that it was a much more complicated undertaking, in fact. You cannot downshift casually and easily the way you might slip into bed at the end of a long day. This is why the Puritan and Jewish Sabbaths were so exactingly intentional, requiring extensive advanced preparation. The rules did not exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving requires a surprisingly strenuous act of will one that has to be bolstered by habit as well as by societal sanction. 
So counterintuitive is the idea of organized non-productivity, given the force and universality of the human urge to make things, that you can't believe anyone ever managed to lift his head from his workbench or plow long enough to think of it. The Israelite Sabbath institutionalized an astonishing, hitherto undreamed of notion that every single creature has the right to rest. Not just the rich and the privileged. Covered under the fourth commandment are women, slaves, strangers, and improbably animals. The verse in Deuteronomy that elaborates on this aspect of the Sabbath repeats twice that slaves were not to work, as if to drive home what must have been very hard to understand in the ancient world. The Jews were meant to perceive the Sabbath not only as a way to honor God, but also as the central vehicle of their liberation theology, a weekly reminder of their escape from their servitude in Egypt. We have the Sabbath to thank for labor legislation and for our belief that it is wrong for employers to drive their employees until they drop from exhaustion. Religious rituals are designed to convey to us a certain story about who we are without our even quite noticing that they are doing so. That's the long-term effect and formation of the Sabbath. The story told by the Sabbath is that of creation. We rest because God rested on the seventh day. What leads from God to humankind is the notion of imitatio Dei, the imitation of God. In other words, we rest in order to honor the divine in us, to remind ourselves that there is more to us than just what we do during the week. If the Sabbath you choose to observe isn't a religious one, you should nonetheless be religiously disciplined in your approach to it, observing it every week, not just when it's convenient. The story of creation was written in such a way that each day, Each new creation is seen as a step towards a completion that occurred on the Sabbath. What was creation's climactic culmination? The act of stopping. Why should God have considered it so important to stop? God stopped to show us that what we create becomes meaningful to us only once we stop creating it and start to think about why we did so. The implication is clear. We could let the world wind us up and set us to marching like mechanical dolls that go and go until they fall over because they don't have a mechanism that allows them to pause. But that would make us less than human. We have to remember to stop because we have to stop to remember. There's a lot of content there. There's a lot of depth, and there's a lot of insight to excavate. And if you have the ears to hear, you heard it. And I'm not sure how many of us have the ears to hear. I want to tell you personally, for me, I've come to a place where I have sworn to myself, never again. I am never, ever going to burn out again. I am absolutely wholly committed to living my life and being myself out of the divine rest that only Jesus himself can give to me as the beloved one. I don't care if my children are starving. I will not burn out ever again. Never again. And my hope is that many of you 
will say today, never again. And I know, practically speaking, it seems impossible to be able to stop the machinery because your, li- your life's plates are spinning. And you should start practically thinking about how you would experience deep rest, how you would avail yourself to this rest that God offers to us. You say, well, it doesn't work for me. Look at my life stage. Look where I'm at in life. Look at my financial situation. Look at the kind of work I have to do. Right. You will do what you need to do. And it's up to you. And as soon as you say never again, as soon as you're willing to take a stand, because society, as much as we are in it, it doesn't love you. Do you know this, that society doesn't love your soul? Society is the machinery. It wants to keep going. It wants to churn. It's looking at the bottom line of things, but not the bottom line of your soul. It doesn't check in with you about how you are really doing. It doesn't offer you what I think the gospel offers you. And you can buy into the machinery. You can become a cog in the wheel. Or, or you can say, you know, I don't want to be a slave. I don't have to be a slave. Liberation theology isn't just for Israelites coming out of Egypt. It's not just for African Americans finding their story out of slavery here. It's for me. It's not just for Peter, who's an immigrant, whose family came over to work. It's for me. It's, it's for the people of God. And it's possible for you because God has finished his work and Jesus has finished our work. This is the gospel. How would your work or what you do or who you are be different if yourself wasn't on the line, if you didn't fear judgment and the peering eyes of man, if drivenness and ambition and success weren't about you or identity, what if they were put in their proper place? What if you were already loved and you weren't fearful? What if you lived in a world that was safe, a self that was secure, and power was in the right hands so it doesn't have to be in yours? That's what the gospel offers. Now, how do we get this deep rest? So some application points. I have three. Number one is to read. I want to invite you to read this book called The Sabbath by Abraham Heschel. It's a thin little book. And as I mentioned, I bought this in 2009. So I'm, I'm, late. I'm late coming to this too. I'm recovering. Uh, it is, um, by chance, the number one best-selling Jewish theology book on Amazon. It is a powerful and deep book. And you have to read it slow. You have to read it twice. You have to read it thrice. But it's worth your read. Second thing is the article, Bring Back the Sabbath, in the New York Times by Judith Sholovitz. And if you Google search this, just put in quotes, Bring Back the Sabbath, and it'll be the first two links, one to the New York Times and one to her blog. And for parents, there's another one by Judith Sholovitz on the Sabbath and how to practice the Sabbath as a parent of young children. Really practical, helpful stuff. Like she says things like, do you know you don't have to take your kid to every event. 
do you know that your kid doesn't have to go to every event? Mind-blowing stuff, I know. Okay, second thing is rest. Practically speaking, one day a week. Uh, Verse 10 and 11 says this, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall. Now, interesting word here, fall. You know, it's not talking about burnout. It's talking about falling away from the faith. So if you don't enter God's rest and you remain churning externally and internally, if you are an addict and a slave inside, then eventually you're going to fall. Not just burnout, but you're going to abandon the faith. Isn't that interesting? I wouldn't juxtapose these two things together naturally, but this was my experience that when I was burning out from the way I had lived my life and carried on as a human being, what what happened as I entered into burnout? I began to become cynical about the goodness of God because I wasn't kind to my soul. I certainly couldn't imagine that God is kind to my soul. So I began to become cynical about his goodness. And then what's the point of believing in a God who's not good? And I came to the screw that moment, forget that God, and I began to feel like God doesn't exist because I don't want that kind of God to exist. If God is in love, we don't need God. We have enough cruel gods in our life. Why should I believe in this one? And so here's what it says. Let us be diligent to enter that rest, the rest that God himself is in, the rest that he alone offers, so that no one will fall. Fascinating stuff, guys. Why are you a Christian? What's the point of you believing in God if he is cruel to you? If God doesn't care about your soul, then heck, that's nobody, because nobody cares about your soul then. Not you, Not another human being, not society, not institutions. Who loves your soul if God doesn't love your soul? You might as well fall away from him. What is the practical, logical thing to do unless he does love your soul? So practice the Sabbath once a week. Once a week, have a day where you will cease. The word Sabbath means to stop. It's the culmination of your work. You worked so that you could rest. You don't rest so you could work. The point is rest. And lastly, talk. Notice in verse 11, it says, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. It's us. Because it really does take societal sanction. It's hard to practice the Sabbath by yourself because there are moving pieces in your life and you have to coordinate with your inner orbit at the very least. You have to talk about the Sabbath like you talk about how busy you are or how tired you are, how full you are. Forget about that. Now start talking about how you're going to rest. What recreational activity are you going to do that allows you to be recreated into God's image? That's what recreation is. That there is a divine image in you. And because God rested, you too must rest. And so talk about that. Look forward to that. 
Susie knows how much, how much I love my Sabbath. I work towards it all week, and then it just sets me up again. You don't want to hear me preaching after I've had no Sabbath. All sorts of ugly starts leaking out. Really does. It really does. When I'm turd, I'm no good. I'm no good. So talk about your Sabbath to create that sanction around you. Create a system around you. I want to rest my case today uh, with this verse from Matthew 11. Very famous verse. And then one more. Come unto me, all ye. And by the way, this is the King James Version because this verse only should be read in the King James. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you believe this? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said when questioned about the Sabbath, his answer was, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You know what that means? That means all of the rest you've ever experienced in your life, momentary, long ones, short ones, all of the soul love you've ever experienced, all been pointing to the person of Christ. He brings rest. He gives you final rest. He sits down at the right hand of God because he is finished. He's able to finally stop working. And he's done it for us, for you and for me. I invite you to his rest. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I'm really excited about resting today after Sunday's over and uh, with food and drink and friends and experiencing love apart from my performance as a person, my ability to uh, do stuff or make stuff or care about stuff. All of that stuff is in your hands. And I just love that. And I can rest. And even if I die, it will be okay. So God, give us that kind of peace and perspective and rest for our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.